Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, I have one announcement to make tonight before we... Um before we get started, and that is that we're going to have a congregational meeting on uh, May the 16th, Sunday, at, immediately after church. It would be a relatively short meeting. The primary purpose is that we need to uh, get the congregational's approval for uh, Bob Beaver to be on the Board of Deacons. So that will be the purpose of the meeting on May, uh, May 16th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's... uh, Bow our heads together, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word this evening and make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit and ready to and spiritually prepared to study, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're so grateful that we can come together to fellowship around the study of your word, that it is your word that helps us to think about all of the issues of life, and in your word you address every single issue in life. There's nothing that is left uh, unaddressed. There's nothing that is ignored because since you are the Father, uh, since you are the creator of all things, since you are the one who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them, there is something within the Scripture that addresses every issue in life and provides us with that framework uh, so that we can learn to think about your creation and everything in it the way that you intended. Father, we pray that as we study tonight and we continue to focus on the future, focus on the future kingdom that you will establish upon the earth in fulfillment of all of your promises, prophecies, and covenants to Israel. We pray that this would encourage us today, knowing that whatever promises you have made regarding the Christian life will come true and that you will never leave us or forsake us. And no matter how difficult things may be, no matter how much it might seem that you have uh, left us or departed from us, or no matter how much it may seem that we have uh, departed from you, that that relationship we have based on the work of Christ on the cross can never be destroyed. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, before we get started, I have something to read to everyone, a letter that came in, email. Some of you I may have sent this to today. It's from Randy Price. Uh, Dr. Randall Price is the head of the uh, Israel Studies Department at uh, at Liberty University in, um, in Virginia. And he has his Ph.D. in Middle Eastern Studies from University of Texas, and he is a recognized and qualified archaeologist who's led various uh, digs in Israel and has also been on at least three expeditions to Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark. And today, 
And yesterday and today, an announcement came across on the news that there was a discovery made by a group of evangelicals, a team of Chinese and Turkish evangelicals up on Mount Ararat, that they have discovered the ark. And I received a number of emails to that effect today, and I had received this from Randy yesterday, so I... Uh, since I received one just before I left to come to class tonight, I thought, well, maybe I ought to read this so that you can uh, respond with a little, uh, uh, little discernment. Dear friends, Randy writes, many of you have seen the preliminary news announcement of an alleged discovery of Noah's Ark by a Chinese expedition team and asked me for clarification. I knew this was coming and have been praying about how to respond. I was the archaeologist with the Chinese expedition in the summer of 2008 and was given photos of what they now are reporting to be the inside of the ark. I and my partners invested $100,000 in this expedition, which they have retained despite their promise and our request to return it, since it was not used for the expedition. The information given below is my opinion based on what I have seen and heard from others who claim to have been eyewitnesses or know the exact details. To make a long story short, this is all reported to be a fake. The photos were reputed to have been taken off-site near the Black Sea, but the film footage the Chinese now have was shot on location on Mount Ararat. In the late summer of 2008, ten Kurdish workers hired by Parasut, the guide used by the Chinese, are said to have planted large wood beams taken from an old structure in the Black Sea area where the photos were originally taken at the Mount Air, uh, from an area in the Black Sea at the, at the Mount Ararat site. In the winter of 2008, a Chinese climber taken by parachutes men to the site saw the wood but couldn't get inside because of the severe weather conditions. During the summer of 2009, more wood was planted inside a cave at the site. The Chinese team went in the late summer of 2009. I was there at the time and knew about the hoax and was shown the cave with the wood and and where they made their film. As I said, I have the photos of the inside of the so-called ark that shows cobwebs in the corners of rafters, something just not possible in these uh, conditions, that high altitude. We're just not going to get that. And our Kurdish partner in... Dagi Babuzet, the village at the foot of Mount Ararat, has all of the facts about the location, the men who planted the wood, and even the truck that transported it. To my knowledge, the Chinese took no professional archaeologist or geologist who could verify or document the wood or the structure at the site. Uh, they were duped in 2006-2007 by Parasute when they were shown a similar cave with something they thought was wood. I met the Chinese when I went with a team of geologists to examine the wood in Dagubabuzit and to report that it was volcanic rock, rock called tuff and not wood. Thereafter, since the Chinese were apparently able to get permits to climb in previously off-limit sites, I and two other professionals joined with the Chinese, bringing our own independent satellite data. And we went with them to Mount Ararat in 2008. During that expedition, the guide Parasute, who claimed to have found the ark, was constantly drunk, and after one month sitting in a hotel waiting, the expedition never happened. 
It was at this time that I made contact with Dr. Richard Bright, who has climbed Mount Ararat 33 times in search of the ark, and with several others climbed the western side of Mount Ararat with a shepherd who had recently been discovered by Dr. Bright's Kurdish partner, who knew the location of a piece of the ark. Last year we had a good expedition to a higher site, the satellite site, and this summer we will excavate the shepherd site and have every reason to expect Success. They had every reason last year, but the Lord sent three blizzards in a week, and they didn't get very far. Um, he goes on to say, I'm sorry to have to report that this is apparently a fake, and I'm sure that the Chinese do not know this, but they do not respond to my emails. However, we do hope to soon have the real thing. I encourage your prayers for me and others who will have to explain this discovery to many others because negative reports are never well-received and motives are questioned, especially when those doing so are part of a competitive expedition. But we do not want people to reject the truth of the Bible because another Noah's Ark report turns out to be false. We prefer to uh, be as upfront in our reporting as possible so Christians and others can make up their own minds. Signed, uh, Randall Price. So that will give you something to think about when you see these news reports that I think this morning somebody said it was reported on Fox News and it was on their uh, website and then several other people sent me links. So uh, from what uh, Randy says, this doesn't look like this is what it uh, claims to be. Okay, open your Bibles to Revelation uh, 20 for at least the time being, and we'll continue our study on the last significant phase in human history, at least earth history that we know about, which is referred to as the millennium. Now, last time we looked at these first six verses in Revelation 20 to basically see two things. Then that's all we learn in Revelation about the millennium. It is, it is a 1,000-year period of time. It's not a, that's not a term that uh, describes a, an ideal period of time. It's not an, uh, sort of a spiritualized number to indicate uh, just a vague, long period of time, but that 1,000 years means uh, 1,000 years. And the term 1,000 comes from the uh, Latin word milli, which is where we get the word, the English word millennium. And so millennium is a word that is used to describe this 1,000-year reign of Christ based on this particular chapter. So this chapter tells us first that it's a 1,000-year kingdom. No other section of Scripture tells us how long the kingdom's going to be. It's 1,000 years according to Revelation uh, chapter uh, 20. The other thing we learn from these verses is that Satan is going to be bound during that time. He's removed from the earth, so there's no influence from Satan or demons during the millennial kingdom, and Satan is bound for that 1,000 years in the abyss. And this means that all whatever problems there are on the earth come simply because of fallen natures of humans who are sinners. That is the basic problem that man has had ever since Adam fell. When Adam chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, at that instant he became a sinner. Sin, evil, a sinner. Sin and evil entered into his makeup, and he became spiritually dead, and his nature became corrupted by sin, so that he and all of his descendants have been 
affected by sin. Man is basically evil, according to Scripture. Jeremiah says the heart is uh, wicked and evil above all things. Who can know it? Man is basically evil. His orientation is toward arrogance, toward self-centeredness, self-absorption, all of this, and everything flows out of that sin nature, and he is not basically good. And that really makes a huge difference in how you approach all the social problems in the, on the earth, education problems, economic problems, all kinds of things, whether you uh, start from a position that man is basically good or basically evil is will predetermine how you view any number of issues in life. And the Bible clearly starts at that point that man is basically evil, but God has provided a solution, and only God can provide that solution, and he does it through his Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal second person of the of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. And by paying the penalty for sin, he not only provides a solution to the sin penalty for individual salvation, but he also provides the foundation for eventually uh, redeeming the universe, the creation, so that the curse and the consequences of sin can be removed, the effects of sin can be removed uh, from, from the universe. And during the millennial kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be the uh, on-site ruler over the earth. So there will be a perfect political system on the earth. You won't get one today. You won't even get one that comes close today. Uh, everybody who's in a political party, everybody who's in a political position today is corrupt and basically evil. And we need to get back to the, that point that the founding fathers of the United States had because they understood that and that power just corrupts because it appeals to the power lust of the sin nature. And that's why there were so many checks and balances set up by the Constitution in order to prevent, try to prevent any one person or group of people from assuming power. But, of course, living in the devil's world, uh, that is only going to uh, work for a while. Eventually, sinful, evil men are going to figure out ways to work their way around the checks and balances in the Constitution and to take power for themselves. And whenever people take power for themselves, they take it away from others, and so then freedom is lost. So we don't have a situation where there's perfect politics and uh, until you get into the millennial kingdom, and there will be a perfect uh, political system. The Lord Jesus Christ will be king. The perfect political system biblically is not a democracy or a republic. It is a monarchy, and it is a monarchy where the monarch is absolutely perfect and without sin, and only when you have a ruler that is sinless can you have any level of perfection in government. Until that point, all governments are, government itself is not evil, but all governments are composed of evil individuals who will uh, generate evil within within their governmental system. So Jesus Christ will establish a perfect government on the earth. Satan will be removed, and it starts with everybody on the earth being believers. And by the time you get to the end of the thousand years, there's a huge number, millions, that will have rejected God, rejected the grace of Jesus Christ, 
in favor of uh, elevating their own power lust and their own sin nature. Satan's released, and there's going to be a rebellion. Now, we'll get to that a little later on. But what I want to do tonight is get back to this, just basically establishing these ba- the basic terminology for talking about the millennium and how what we know about it by going back to the Old Testament passages. And we began this last time, so this is mostly review. The uh, Latin word for a thousand was milli. The Greek word was kilioi. And uh, so the early church fathers, were, which primarily spoke Greek, they were from the eastern part of the empire, they were called kilias. So we saw, first of all, that premillennialism is the view that uh, Jesus comes back before the beginning of the kingdom. Pre means before. So premillennial means Jesus returns before the kingdom begins. This is the view that uh, we believe the Bible teaches based on a literal interpretation of the Scripture. The tribulation ends, Jesus Christ returns, and, est- and sets up his kingdom, which lasts for a thousand years, and that's really just stage one of eternity. And then there will be the great white throne judgment. All unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. Satan's cast into the lake of fire, and then... Uh, we go into the new heavens and the new earth. On the other hand, there are those who, <clears throat> on the basis of a non-literal interpretation, well, really I ought to talk about this one first, non-literal interpretation uh, said there's really not a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the, on the earth. That's A thousand just means a, it's just a figurative term. It's just a symbol. It's not a literal number. And this just indicates that that uh, uh, there will be a lengthy ideal period of, of of a utopian kingdom upon the earth. And in that view, there's the first resurrection is understood to be what happens spiritually at conversion, and the kingdom is spiritual. It's not literal, physical on the earth. And so, in their view, we are now in the kingdom. Now, where you'll hear this is when you hear people talk about doing such and so for the kingdom. We're going to do this for the kingdom. And that really is, is talk, they're talking about what we're doing here and now. They're not talking about what we're going to do for the, in the future, but what we're doing here and now. So in some sense, they view uh, that we're in some spiritual form of the kingdom today. Christ is reigning from a spiritualized throne of David in heaven. It's not a physical, literal throne, but it's just a spiritualized throne. This age will end when Jesus returns at the second coming. Uh, all judgments take place at that point, and then we go into eternity. And then there's postmillennialism, which grew out of amillennialism, and it's the idea that under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the church will expand its influence during this age. The kingdom, the, remember, a spiritual kingdom will spread, permeate all of the nations, all of the cultures, and under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the the church basically not in a militant sense but through the holy spirit and through evangelism will the the kingdom will come into its fullness and after that is established then uh the lord jesus christ returns after the millennium has come into existence so those are your three basic views and a lot of people uh have a lot of trouble remembering those terms and what they mean so that may be very easy for some of you, but others, it may be new terminology. It may take you a while to uh, really get a handle on it, so I'll review it a few times. But uh, premillennialism, 
Christ comes back before the millennium. Post-millennialism, he comes back after the millennium. And amillennialism, there's no real literal earthly kingdom at all. We just have the church age. And in that view, the church is, is Israel in the New Testament, and Israel was the church in the Old Testament. So that's, amillennialism is basically replacement theology uh, in many ways. So there's other aspects, other parts of this that have problems, and we'll talk about those later. So we just went through Revelation 20 last time to show that that there are in these in these six verses five different references uh, to the thousand years. Revelation 20 verse 2, Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's cast into a bottomless pit in verse 3 so that he doesn't deceive the nations for a thousand years. In verse 4, uh, we're told that there are those who sit on thrones. These are the resurrected believers from the church age, from the Old Testament saints that will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, verse 5, the rest of the dead are not resurrected for another thousand years. And then in verse 6, um, the blessed and holy, those who have a part in the first resurrection because they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So all of those, uh, all that repetition of a thousand years indicates that, again, that the writer is very clear that this is a 1,000 year uh, period of time, and a literal 1,000 year period of time and a literal, a literal kingdom. And as I pointed out last time, There are those two facts that we learn about the kingdom from Revelation 20. It's 1,000 years in length, and Satan is bound during that time, so it is a perfect empire. There are certain aspects of the curse of Genesis uh, uh, Genesis 3 that are rolled back so that uh, the the way that the curse worked its way out in the animal kingdom uh, is going to be turned back so that the lion will lie down with the lamb. There are other aspects of the curse in relationship to, to nature and man's toil that are going to be reversed. And so this, this means that this is going to be, uh, it's not perfect environment like, like the environment that existed in the Garden of Eden before the fall, but it is close to that. It's a, at least as, uh, it's, it's better than the environment from the fall to the flood. But it's not going to be absolute perfect environment because there still are sinners and sin natures on the earth. But how do we know about the rest of the uh, the rest of the characteristics of the of the millennial kingdom? Well, we only know those if we go back to the Old Testament. I pointed out last time this is uh, this is just a good exercise for you, not just an academic exercise, but one to think about because there are times when you, as I will have uh, the chance to witness or to talk with uh, Jews, especially Jewish folks, who want to know a little bit about what you believe is an evangelical Christian and why you believe it, and may ask you something about related to, well, what do you think is going to happen? Are we living in the end times, and what do Christians think will occur in the end times, and how is that going to affect uh, the Middle East and Israel and things of that nature? And so what I explained last time is I've given this some thought, and I think that a good approach is to go to the Old Testament. Don't go to the New Testament passages, because frankly there's not that much in the New Testament about this. But go to the Old Testament to establish that the millennial kingdom, the future kingdom, is a Jewish kingdom 
ruled by the Messiah. Stay away from talking about Jesus at this point. Just talk about the fact that the Old Testament predicts a a future glorious kingdom that God will establish his king over that kingdom and that that king is referred to by that Old Testament term, Mashiach, which means the anointed one or, or the appointed one. And so the, the Messiah is going to rule. Now, the only thing that happens really is that as, as Christians, we have plugged Jesus into that role of Messiah. But don't pull that in too quickly in laying out what the Old Testament says. And it may take a little time to establish in their mind some sense that that's what the Old Testament says, because in modern Judaism, they don't talk much about the Messiah. That got them in trouble once before. And so they're not real, real, uh, uh, prone to talk about the Messiah today because they're, they're afraid that, that as soon as they do, people are going to start talking about Jesus. So the, there's very little discussion and very little talk in modern Judaism about the Messiah. In modern Judaism, you have to remember this was a reformulation of, of what the Jews believed, uh, primarily the Pharisee, the Pharisaical party, at the Council of Jomnia, which occurred in about 90 A.D., some 20 years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, leaders uh, in, in Judaism, the rabbis who survived, gathered together and held a council for determining the, how they, they were going to continue to uh, unify the Jewish community, which is now in the diaspora, now scattered, dispersed among the Gentile nations, how they were going to restructure Judaism, a templeless, sacrificeless Judaism, and and so they they restructured their beliefs, and that is what is known as rabbinical theology. It is not identical with what's going on in the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament? It's really a misnomer to talk about what was going on in the Old Testament as Judaism. Judaism. Uh, at least the, uh, a lot of the ideas come into uh, existence and become popular in the intertestamental period as, as uh, popularized by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, which, and you see elements of that uh, in the uh, conflicts that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But after the temple is destroyed, it's the Pharisees as the conservative party that really restructures uh, based on uh, Talmud, based on uh, Mishnah, the teachings of the rabbis in the intertestamental period, begins to pull these things together, write down the oral tradition, and then that becomes the foundation for modern Judaism. And from the things that I have studied, they had a real problem dealing with, with Jesus. I mean, we may kind of chuckle about that, but they really did. And they had a real problem with dealing with some passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53. Because if if a Christian, somebody who believed Jesus was the Messiah, had a Jewish person read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, 
they would more than likely become converted. They would read that and think that was that obviously was fulfilled in Jesus. And, and we believe it was obviously fulfilled in Jesus. And it took them almost a thousand years to come up with an alternate interpretation that the suffering servant in Isaiah, the last part of Isaiah from Isaiah 50 on, wasn't talking about an individual, but it was talking about the nation. And that that interpretation came in around uh, approximately a thousand, a little after a thousand uh, A.D. And there were other things that were developed during the the Middle Ages period uh, by the rabbis that that restructured uh, uh, Judaism. And one of these things was to sort of knock out or eject any discussion about the Messiah. And I read an article today in the Encyclopedia of Judaism on the Messiah which was making these very uh, these very points about the, the fact that the Messiah just doesn't play the whole concept of a future kingdom, a future Messiah doesn't have a very big role in modern Judaism. So if you talk about this, you may not get any kind of response uh, from someone because they're not really trained in reading. Uh, and they probably haven't read the the Old Testament, so you might have to encourage them to read through uh, the Old Testament, read through certain passages as you have an uh, ongoing uh, dialogue with them. So as I thought about this, I thought, well, there are basically three ways to establish a future Jewish kingdom. Three ways to establish a future Jewish kingdom. And if you can think your way through these three things in as simple a way as you can, make a few notes in your Bible on, on the ways to do this, then when that opportunity comes, you have some guidance in what to do, what passages to go to. The first way is to talk about the covenants that God made with the Jewish people in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, of course, is the foundational covenant, and then the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, that he never completely fulfilled those covenants. So either God lied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to, and to uh, Moses, and to the people of Israel, and to David, or he hasn't fulfilled these yet, and he will fulfill them in the future. So we need to think it through in terms of what did God promise in those covenants. The second thing that uh, approach that you can take is that there are specific, that should be specific, one S, not a plural specifics, but, uh, a, but specific promises about the Messiah. Specific promises about the Messiah. Just what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? Now, there are probably 30 or 40 passages you could go to to establish certain things about the Messiah, but perhaps the best thing you could do is just pick five, and that's all I'm going to do is pick about five key passages about the Messiah that you can go to that are very, very clear passages about who the, who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is going to do. And then the third element would be to establish the character of the Jewish kingdom. What did the prophets say about this kingdom? How did they describe this kingdom? What did they say would be the characteristics of this future Jewish kingdom, this golden age that that would come when the Messiah would deliver Israel and establish this 
kingdom uh, in fulfillment of the promises that had been made in the covenants. Now, we've studied a lot of this before, so I'm not going to go through in a tremendous amount of detail, but just to remind you and pick out a few germane points, the foundational covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that God made to Abraham. It's, the, it's summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, but the covenant itself is not truly cut until Genesis 15 and, again, Genesis 17. So those give us more details. But Genesis chapter 12, uh, 1 through 13, really do describe, or actually that should be 1 through 3, describe the uh, covenants, that there are three promises that God makes that he's going to give a specific piece of real estate to Abraham. It has boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. It's going to be bounded on the west by the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so all of that territory that's between the Euphrates and the, and the Mediterranean all the way down to the uh, river of Egypt, which is not the Nile. Most scholars think it refers to a, um, a, a wadi that is down in the uh, Sinai area. But all of that territory comes under uh, the, the promise of God, and it's never been fully controlled by Israel. So God has never fully given them that land. He, they've never had complete operational control. The seed, he, God promised Abraham that he would have seed that would be uh, almost numberless. It would be like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the sky, and that it is through his seed that all of the earth would be blessed. And then uh, the, the promise of blessing uh, through the seed means that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those that curse Israel would be cursed. And each of these elements, the land, the seed, and the blessing, are then described in three distinct covenants. The land covenant or real estate covenant, sometimes called the Palestinian covenant, since Palestine usually refers to the Arabs today, that's not really the best term to use. The land covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where it is called a different covenant from the covenant God gave them at Mount Horeb, this refers to the land itself, that God would return them to the land after they, after they turned to him. God would restore them to the land from all the places on the earth where they had been uh, where they had been scattered, and then when they he established them in the land, then there would be a, a difference in their uh, spiritual life. They would be obedient to him, and um, we see those primarily covered in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, and then in the prophets, uh, in Isaiah 11, 11 uh, to 12, 6, and in Ezekiel 37.8, there are also subsequent promises related to the return and a worldwide regathering to the land. And this uh, regathering from all of the land will reunite all of the tribes of Israel in the land, and it is then that they will fully have control of the land. Then the seed promise is expanded in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised a covenant, uh, made a promise to David that he would have a descendant who would 
uh, be on his throne forever. This means that whoever that descendant was would have to be somebody who could live forever. So it brings in the idea that this descendant of David would not only have to be human to be a descendant of David, but he would also have to be divine in order to be eternal. So it, it doesn't uh, come right out and say this is going to be the God-man, but it describes both human and divine qualities to the seed of David. So it's a promise for an eternal house, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal kingdom. And then the third covenant is the new covenant, which deals with the regeneration of the nation, the Holy Spirit given to them, and all of the manifestations that come with that in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34. The Davidic covenant, as I pointed out in the past, has these three elements, the eternal house, eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. It can only be fulfilled by someone who is eternal. So now we look at this chart. shows the fulfillment of these. The promises are made in the Old Testament, and then they are fulfilled in the, in the uh, future. So when you look at this chart, we have the past on the left, the future on the right, and we'll put in a timeline here uh, showing the various ages in the Old Testament, the early formation of Israel, followed by the theocracy and the monarchy, the exile, and then the restoration leading up to the cross, then the church age, and then the millennial kingdom when the promises are fulfilled. The foundation of the covenants was the Abrahamic covenant given in the Old Testament, And with each of these three elements, the land, the seed, and the blessing, which is described by the New Covenant. Now, on the New Covenant chart, you see I have a dashed line there because the the literal fulfillment of the New Covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it is applied to the church in the church age. We receive the benefits... uh, from that covenant that was established by the death of Christ on the cross. And so this gives us a foundation. When we talk about the kingdom, we see that God had all of these promises that he made to Israel in the Old Testament that have never, ever been fulfilled. So either God was lying or he's going to fulfill them at some time in the future. He's going to restore them to the land He will restore a ruler to them who will be eternal and will be a physical human descendant of David. And he, at the time that that kingdom is restored, there will be a new spiritual life for, uh, for the Jews in the land. So that's our first approach is to talk about the covenants. The second approach is to talk about, uh, what God promised in terms of the kingdom itself, what God promised in terms of the Messiah, the ruler of the uh, of the kingdom. And we learn from the Old Testament that this person is described as the Messiah and that he will reign as the king from the literal throne of David in Israel throughout the kingdom period as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's not ruling on a spiritualized throne up in heaven, but on a literal throne on the earth in Israel. And this is emphasized in a number of of key passages. And the first one is Psalm 2. Now, this is a passage that you ought to have marked up in your Bibles, and you ought to have certain phrases underlined, highlighted, and circled in Psalm 2 because it is a 
It is a psalm that is used more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's a psalm we've gone through several times in our study of Hebrews on, on, um, on Thursday night, especially in the first part of Hebrews, and it establishes that future reign of Christ as the Jewish king, the son of David. So right now, I'm not, I don't have uh, all of the verses up on the screen, but I want you to turn to Psalm 2, and we'll just start uh, with our quick look at the second psalm. Now, when we look at Psalm 2, we see that it is focusing on a battle scenario between the uh, between the nations on the earth, referred to as the nations and the people in verse 1, who are have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed in verse 2. The word for anointed is Mashiach. So you ought to circle that and write Messiah there so that you, un- you can go back to that. So there's a battle here between the kings of the earth, all of the earth, all of the nations versus God and uh, the Messiah. And one of the uh, more well-known rabbis in uh, the Middle Ages by the name of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, uh, Otherwise referred to simply as Rashi, they have, they would abbreviate the names for these, uh, for the rabbis. You'd have, uh, uh, Rambam and Ramban and various other names referring to, usually picking up the uh, initials of their, of their names and then they would just be shortened that way. So Rashi referred to Rabbi Shlomo Yachaki who lived from, uh, 1040 to 1105, uh, AD. And he wrote in Midrash that our rabbis expound it, that is Psalm 2, as relating to King Messiah. Okay, so here's good rabbinical attestation that Psalm 2 talks about the Messiah. And in this chapter, we learn that first of all, that God will set up his king on Mount Zion. God is the one who establishes this king and this kingdom on Mount Zion. This is seen in verse, uh, down in verse 5, uh, verse 6, rather. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That king is the anointed, the Mashiach, in verse 2. So you could draw a circle around anointed in verse 2 and king in verse 6 and then draw a line between them to show that they they connect. They're talking about the same individual. Second thing we see is that based on verse 2, the time in which God sets his king on Mount Zion is at a time that is that there is a united rebellion against him by the kings of the earth. So that hasn't happened yet. There's never been a worldwide revolt against God. We're getting close, but it hasn't happened yet where all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth come together in a rebellion against God. And it is when that occurs, that is the event that immediately precedes the establishment of the king and the kingdom in Israel. 
And so the third thing we note is it is at that time that the Messiah King will take rulership over the nations and he will break their disobedient will with a rod of iron. This is seen in uh, down in verse 9. Uh, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And verse th- uh, verse 8 tells us that God gives to the king, gives to the Messiah, the nations for his inheritance, and so he will establish a worldwide kingdom and rule over them, uh, rule over the nations during this particular time. So you have a, a timeline set up here. There will be a worldwide rebellion against God. God will break the power of the nations and the kings of the earth. He will set up his king on Mount Zion, and he will then rule over all of the nations. So that is Psalm 2, the first key passage to go to. The second key passage to go to is a verse we usually go to at Christmas time, and this is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. This section of Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the Emmanuel section because the name Emmanuel appears uh, three times in uh, chapters 7 and 8, in 7, uh, 14, and 8, 8, and 8, 10, because it is this cha- these chapters 7, 8, and 9 that deal with the various facets of the rule of the Messiah. And Emmanuel means God with us. Im is the Hebrew preposition with. Uh, Iman is Emmanu. The U ending there is with us, the sec, uh, first person plural. And then L is uh, the name for God. So Emmanuel literally means God with us. So these two verses give us an indication of the nature of the Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 begins, For unto us a child is born. And here you have uh, what sounds like a little bit of a play on words. Uh, Yalad, uh, Yalad, rather, is a child, and a Yalad is the uh, Hebrew for to give birth. So a Yalad is Yalad, uh, the the child is born. And this the birth aspect indicates that this is a normal human Birth, So the child being born indicates his true humanity. And the second line then says, unto us a son is given. Now to understand that, you have to go back to earlier revelation. What did Psalm 2-7 say? I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, that is the Messiah, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there is this title, Son, is a title that applies to the Messiah King. He is called the Son of God. So he is given to Israel. Uh, He's given as a human child. He's given to Israel. And then certain titles are applied to him. The next stanza says the government will be upon his shoulder, so he's going to rule and reign. That connects to the rule of iron. Rod of iron rule back in Isaiah chapter, I mean, Psalm 2 rather, and his name, and his name will be called, and these are titles given to him that describe his character and describe his roles and responsibilities. He is called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, 
Everlasting Father, which is not the best translation. Literally, it should be translated Father of Eternity. He's not the Father. He's the Father of Eternity. That indicates that He is eternal in His being. He does not have a beginning. He is Himself eternal. He's the Father of Eternity, uh, Prince of Peace. So the first title, He is a child. That indicates His human origin. The second, he is a son that indicates his divine origin. The first title that's given to him is that he is called uh, Wonderful uh, and Counselor. Uh, actually, I think these two words should go together in the Hebrew and delete that comma that some translations put between them. He is Wonderful Counselor, and there are some certain words in the Scripture in the original languages that are never used of man, and this is this is one of them. Uh, the word wonderful here is a word that is only used to describe God and what he does. So by calling him wonderful, this is a term that only describes deity, wonderful counselor. Second, he is called mighty God, El Gabor. This is a term that indicates, again, that he is full deity. So why are you describing a child that has been born as fully God? Either this is blasphemy, and Isaiah is guilty of ascribing full deity to a human being, or this is special revelation, and the Messiah is going to combine in one person the two natures of deity and humanity. Uh, he's called Everlasting Father, the Father of Eternity, which indicates that he will be eternal in his very nature. The Eternal One has somehow a beginning in time when he is born as a child. And then he is described as the Peace, the Prince of Peace, which is, uh, indicates that he is the one who, the only one who will bring peace between man and God. He is the one who reconciles, uh, man to God. Furthermore, these uh, additional names are used or additional things are ascribed in verse 7. This is where it really uh, drives it home. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That shows the fulfillment and connection back to the Davidic covenant. He is eternal. It's an everlasting dynasty. There's not going to be any end to the rule and the reign of Jesus uh, and the Messiah as the eternal uh, Son of God. It goes on to say, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So Isaiah 9-7 just gives us more information about the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. Uh, there's no end to his kingdom. He sits on David's throne. He rules over David's, uh, David's kingdom, and he will have a it goes on to say, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. So it is a kingdom that will be characterized by perfect justice. Has this ever been fulfilled? No, it hasn't. And then he goes on to say that it will go from this time forward and evermore, from that time forward and evermore, forever. The zeal of the Lord of, the, of hosts will perform this. And so when we look at Isaiah uh, 9, 6, and 7, we learn that the Messiah will be a king in fulfillment of the, the Davidic promise. He will be a descendant of David. He will be uh, both God and man. He will be born as a child, and he will also be fully God. And that uh, when he comes, he will establish a kingdom that will be characterized by perfect, uh, perfect justice.
And then the next major chapter, we just sort of work our way through Isaiah, is in Isaiah 11, 1, and 2. There's many places you can go to in Isaiah, but we'll just go to the, these two, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Isaiah 11, 1, and 2. In Isaiah 11, 1, and 2, we're told that he shall come from, uh, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and this is described then as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So first of all, he says that this, he's going to come from Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David. So once again, this is locating the, the Messiah as being in the Davidic line and coming out of the uh, house of David. So it is associated with the, uh, with the house of David and with his beginnings. Now it says that he comes from the stem of Jesse. This is a rather humble beginning. It's not talking about a tree, but talking about a stem. And then he says, and a branch will grow out of its roots, indicating that somehow this, uh, a tree has been chopped down and all that's left is the roots. Now we believe this was fulfilled in Jesus because after the exile, after the reestablishment of the, the exiles back in the land, the house of David falls into uh, disrepair, so to speak, and there's no longer a monarchy, a Davidic monarchy ruling in Judah. And so it looks as if the house of David is gone and it's been cut down. But it is out of that stump that a new branch comes that is the Messiah, and the term the branch becomes a title for uh, the Messiah. He is a branch from the uh, root of Jesse. And then we're told that he is, um, uh, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and that he will manifest all of these characteristics and all of these qualities of the Spirit of God, true wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, Remember, he's the wonderful counselor from Isaiah 9, 6, and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The next passage to go to would be in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. This connects the dots with the Messiah to the root of, and the branch of Jesse. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So the characteristic that uh, uh, is most dominant in the Messiah is righteousness. So David has a descendant that's the branch. He is a king. He will reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness or justice. Remember, the righteousness and justice come from the same work, Sadak. Uh, the verb tzedak in the Hebrew, uh, he will execute judgment and righteousness or judgment and justice in the earth. Uh, verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved. So when this kingdom comes, there is a deliverance of Judah. And Israel will dwell safely, but not till then. That's the implication. Now this is his name. What are they going to call this who is the descendant of David? They're going to call him the Lord. 
They're going to call him Yahweh. The sacred tetragrammaton is made up of those four Hebrew letters, uh, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Or we would transliterate them Y-H, W-H. Sometimes the, the, the W is pronounced like a V. Uh, and I, I usually pronounce it that way as a Vav. And this is not ever pronounced by uh, Jews who read the text because of their respect for the name of God, and so they will either read Adonai or um, in modern times they say Hashem, the name. And sometimes when they write, they will you'll see them written with a G, the O's left out and just a hyphen's put in, and then a D. And so that is their way of showing respect uh, for the name of God. But you would never ascribe the name of God, Yahweh, the special covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses before he went to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. You would never call a human Yahweh. And yet that's what this verse is doing. It's saying that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, and that branch of righteousness will be called Yahweh. So there's a human being who will be named Yahweh, and this human being is the king. This human being is the uh, king that is promised from Psalm 2 as the Messiah, who comes into his kingdom at the time of a great worldwide rebellion against uh, against God, and God puts down that rebellion and establishes his king, his Mashiach, on Mount Zion. And then we saw in Isaiah 9-6 that, that this is a descendant of David, and that a, a child is born, he's human, but he is also God. He is mighty God. He is the father of eternity. And we saw from Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, that he is uh, a branch that springs up from David, and he has all of the character qualities of the Spirit of God. And then here we tie that together, that he is the Lord, our righteousness. Verse 7 goes on to read, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in the house, uh, I mean, they shall dwell in their own land. And so this, the fulfillment of this is located when God brings the nation back from where he has scattered the nation all around uh, the earth. Now, some of these facts are also documented by uh, various rabbis and other Jewish literature down through the ages. In the Midrash on Proverbs 19.21, uh, which was written around 200 to 500 A.D., Rabbi Huna said eight names are given to the Messiah, which are Yanon, Shiloh, David, Menachem, Jehovah, or Yahweh, Justi uh, Denostra, or Our Justice, Tzemach, and Elias. And so there he recognizes that the Messiah would be given the name of Yahweh. Uh, in the Midrash on Lamentations 1.16, uh, Rav Ava ben Kahana said, uh, Jehovah is his name, that is the Messiah's name, and this is proved by this quote and goes to Jeremiah 23, verse 6. 
in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, in the section of the tractate Baba Batra, uh, 75b, it states that Shmuel bin Nachman, who was in the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., uh, Shmuel bin Nachman said in the name of Rabbi Yohanan, uh, quote, the following three will be named with the name of the Holy One. Blessed be he, the upright, as it is said. And then he quoted from Isaiah 43, 7, the Messiah, it is, as it is written. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness, quoting from Jeremiah 23, 6. Uh, in the Midrash on Psalm 21, 1, the Midrash states, God calls King Messiah by his own name. But what is his name? The answer is uh, Jehovah is a man of war, and concerning Messiah we read uh, Jehovah our righteousness, this is his name. And so it can be seen uh, in all of these passages that there were rabbis that understood this at various times that uh, the name Yahweh would be applied to the Messiah. Uh, two more quick passages before we wrap up, just so you can pull things together. Jeremiah 33, 20 to 26, uh, the Lord says, If you can break my covenant with the day, my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, my covenant may also be broken with David my servant. In other words, I'll never break the covenant with David my servant, and he will always have a son reigning on the throne. And it goes on to say, uh, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who uh, minister to me, and then uh, go on. That's another key passage. Final verse, verse twenty-six. Then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob. And uh, let me see, back up to verse twenty-five. Thus says the Lord: If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant. But see, his covenant is with the day and night. They will never change, and so he will never. Uh, reverse his covenant with the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of David so that he will never reverse himself on these covenants. And then one uh, final passage, Ezekiel, from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, 23, down through, uh, 20, uh, down through 24, 25, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And there will be no more uh, war, no more problems um, for Israel because they will be under the protect, complete and total protection of the Messiah. Now, in the New Testament... In Luke chapter 1, with the birth of Jesus, uh, the announcement is made to Mary that she is going to give birth, and this is what she's told about the one to, she will give birth to. Uh, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no End. And so you see, you go through the Old Testament and just take about four or five key passages, Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah uh, 11, 1, Isaiah 23, put, uh, Jeremiah 23, rather, and you put these passages together and you can build a basic structure showing what the, uh, the promise of the kingdom was 
for Israel, and it's never been fulfilled. And so there, God is eventually going to fulfill that, but the one who is going to establish that kingdom is going to be the Messiah who is a God-man, and then you go back, and next time we'll come back and look at the next set of verses to describe the characteristics of that kingdom. And once you lay that down, this is what the Old Testament says, and then, then only then do you set the trap and set the hook and show that it is Jesus who fulfills all of those requirements in order to be the Messiah, that promised king. Let's bow our heads, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things, to learn what your word has to say in the promises, the prophecies, the covenants that you made with Israel, the promises of a future kingdom that would be reigned by a king who was the God-man, a king who would reign in righteousness, a king who would uh, reign with all, uh, all of the character qualities, the righteousness, the justice, the integrity of the Godhead. Father, we pray that we might remember these things because they're not only good things to know, good verses to remember, because they will help us in evangelizing or witnessing to someone perhaps Jewish, but just anyone, because it shows that uh, who Jesus is and that he didn't just show up on the planet and expect people to follow him, but that his his incarnation was the result of a lengthy preparation and process that began and continue through the Old Testament period. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.